Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart. And in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and the government's response to it, I have, I think, an important guest on to talk about something that might be on everybody's minds, whether you're libertarian or not. It is that how do we get out of this society? What is what is the way forward to a more free and prosperous future? So I actually have a guy who's written a step-by-step book on how to do this. So I have Joe McKinney on. He is the executive director for the Institute for Competitive Governments, the CEO of the New Hans Network. And he has written a book called Startup Societies, a step-by-step guide. Joe, thanks for being on with us. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on Good Friday. Yeah. So I've become very disenchanted with government for over like 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I've been a libertarian for about that same amount of time because, you know, at one point you just kind of become a libertarian. And, you know, when you're like disenchanted, it's like, oh, they're all bad. They're all bad. What's, What's the way forward? And, you know, the things have popped up you know, along the way, like the Seasteading Institute, and there's all these other, you know, different things that, you know, libertarians with big ideas propose. And I, I know that the word startup society is, is possibly one of those words, that like a lot of libertarians know, or they, they think they know what it means. And when I read your book, I realized it was one of those things I thought I knew what this book was going to be about, but it was actually more than that. And it actually is, and I want to, I don't want to use the word more promising because it sounds like one better idea among a sea of a bunch of other ideas, but it's really about the whole way forward altogether. So I'll let you explain what a startup society is so that our listeners can get a sense of like, what do you mean by that? Because I can imagine someone being like, oh yeah, it's just one of those libertarian types, you know, saying that we should do this instead of trying to reform government. But it's more than that. Yeah. So the the broader definition of startup societies, uh, it could be anything of those far out there ideas to something that's insanely practical and exists today in, in, in multitudes. So the general definition is a startup society is any form of innovative government located in a small territorial area. So that could be things like existing small states like Singapore. Uh, It also could be things like uh, special zones like Hong Kong, Shenzhen, uh, different zones that are within Dubai. Could be new city projects that don't have a tremendous amount of difference in policies that have different infrastructure. But it could also be something even really small scale, like intentional communities, private communities, HOAs, things that govern on a small scale, or eco-villages that, that are perforated for our lives. Uh, and in our book, we identified a subsection of, of startup societies that we wanted to focus on that were both could have the most impact in terms of value, but at the same time were incredibly practical to the point that an individual who is not in this space or does not have a tremendous amount of capital is able to pursue that idea from the bootstrap stage where they're trying to come up with an idea and they're trying to get a team in funding all the way, potentially, if they take steps correctly and, and move according to the circumstances, to a full-scale city. Um, and the model that we 
most often used is a special economic zone because of unlike a lot of uh, some seasteading projects or a lot of, uh, of libertarian society projects, they are not asking for sovereignty. They're not trying to create their own country. Um, that's tremendously difficult, pretty close to impossible. But at the same time, it's not completely boring. There is differences in law. So a special economic zone, for those who are not familiar, is an area within a host country that has different policies than, than the rest of it. And that could be things from taxes, even regulations, but could be even things like a, new, a totally new legal system or, or visas, uh, what have you. So it could be pretty extreme. Um, and the impact of these special zones has been tremendous. Um, the most impactful is actually in China. It's actually one of the driving reasons of why China is such an economic force today. After Mao died, um, everyone was under a great famine to the point where they were consuming everything imaginable or even unimaginable in some cases. Um, and afterwards, Deng Xiaoping, the successor, realized that in order to have to avoid a complete collapse politically and economically, they needed to make a change, but they couldn't make a change on a large scale. So what they decided to do is they have four experimental zones that try out different policies. In this case, they were pretty free market, or at least relatively so. And one of them was Shenzhen. And Shenzhen, prior to being a special zone, was a fishing village of 30,000 people. But within three years, so decades, it became a city of 18 million with the same GDP as Portugal, Vietnam, or Ireland. Um, it is now one of the most successful cities in all of China. And there's been special zones that have been growing at an increasingly steady rate uh, since then. There's now 5,400 special economic zones around the world, and they account for at least 1% of all global trade. Um, and through our research, we found that next-generation special economic zones, ones that uh, have really streamlined, really uh, forward-thinking regulatory code, and they even have a different legal system that's based on best practices including a lot of free market, common law, property law-based uh, legal systems, they could contribute as much as 3% to the global GDP growth of the host nation. So that's not saying they would only contribute to 3% of the, of the economy of the host nation. But each year, let's say it would normally make 3%. If they have a zone, there is a possibility that they could um, grow at 6% a year and you know, like compound interest, if you continue that type of growth for a long period of time, you can create something absolutely spectacular. Um, but the most important thing for, for libertarians to realize is there is a way to create uh, change that isn't purely electoral. Um, and it's the same reasoning that Deng Xiaoping realized. It's close to impossible to change things on a, a national scale. I mean, a lot of your readers are probably very familiar with public choice theory. The idea that government is, is captured by special interests and there is an economic incentive that's concentrated in those groups and the cost is dispersed among you know, the voters, the taxpayers. So there's very little chance of that changing, especially for large established countries with very large populations. But if you have these pockets of change where you can experiment and you can see how it works, sort of like how the early United States worked out, quite frankly, in a decentralized manner, then maybe something can work out. And... There's, there's so much energy and intelligence in libertarian circles, but um, myself included, uh, it created a bunch of disenfranchised people because they saw themselves as dying on a hill, um, you know, fighting the last stand. But there's so much that can be done out here, and it's not pie in the sky. It happens all the time. Um, and at the same time, you know, 
traditional nation states and global institutions, especially in the wake of COVID, are losing legitimacy. They're losing power. And at the same time, these zones are going to become increasingly important as states pull back a lot of free trade agreements and try to be very protectionist, try to bring back their supply chains. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, Trump, Trump is very worried about having manufacturing in China because of a lot of our uh, uh, our essential medicines are made there. And it makes it very difficult to get them to the United States. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see that for a lot of different goods. But these special zones are bastions of free trade. Um, and as nation states become progressively less uh, respected, these zones potentially could have a lot more authority in the global stage. And that provides a tremendous opportunity for libertarians that are willing to put their energy into creating change uh, into something practical, but it's something about yeah, I mean, the first question that I would want to know as you're describing these sort of special situations is like, well, what host government would really want to afford people the kinds of freedom in a small scale to to sort of experiment with or whatever that they that they're already not doing on a large scale, you know? Um, so you know, like I think of like in the United in the United States, it's you know we have 50 different states that are largely somewhat experimental, and to some extent we can sort of see the results of that. But like, what would something like that look like? for us, or I should say, let's just get to my original question. This is like, what's the, what's the benefit to the host country or the geographical monopoly uh, government? Honestly, it's legion. In fact, it's, it's a criticism of many of libertarians that it's, it's too much of a benefit to the host government. <laughs> um, it's, it, honestly, it's, it's kind of a crown jewel for a lot of them. Um, it creates tremendous economic growth. It creates jobs and they do not have to spend money in many cases unless you're, well, if you're doing it good. And yet it attracts foreign direct investment to fund infrastructure. So that's, that's a really good case for them. And in our book, we even go a step further in order to make sure that we have concessions that are, that are appropriately effective to create real impactful change, especially for many of your, your, your listeners uh, in the liberty direction. We uh, endorse a, a, a profit sharing or a revenue sharing arrangement where they get a share of the land lease revenue associated uh, with the value of, uh, of the Starb Society. So as the Starb Society grows, imagine Dubai, it was a desert, and then it, it introduced this, these new forms of governance and a real estate payday happened. Imagine if, if a government had a share of that land lease revenue at the beginning. And then as it became more successful because that governance, they they have a tremendous windfall. So they are incentivized to the core to have as many incentives as possible and to maintain it. And uh, so that's what we endorse in our book. And the good thing is, and there's not been a single reported case of a government that gives a special zone agreement, which are, again, 5,400 in the world already, and re- re- redacted on it because of, it is part of their policy. They want to save face, even in cases where zones are not doing so well. They don't want to say, oh, no, this project that we en- enabled failed. They want to know that it is a success. Uh, I see. So if there's over 5,000 in the world? Uh, according to UNITAD, the UN uh, Conference on Trade and Development, yeah, 5,400, okay. up from 3,000 five years ago. Okay, so is this... Are these places people can move to, or is this just like they need to move near them and operate a business within these zones? How what does that actually look like? Because I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, if I don't like the way America is going, I'll just move to like 
I don't know, some some South American country that's more free market or we'll move to, you know, a place that's out in the wilderness where, you know, at least I'm, you know, kind of on my own. Like they think of more geographic places. So these places exist. But what do these places that you're describing, what do some of them look like? So they vary, uh, at least special zones. Um, well, they all do. Um, some of them are simply for business, no residential area at all. They're just for export and import. Uh, there are some places that do have residential relations and like Dubai or some more innovative places, especially that focus on, on the tech industry, like the Cayman Islands, Special Economic Zone or Zona America and Uruguay. Um, and it's increasingly becoming the case. And that's what we talk about in the book. We're trying to merge the residential and culture building aspects of uh, uh, intentional communities where you have a, a common culture and a rule set the social system. But in a private community like HOAs, you can combine that with a special zone to have the economic power attached to it. Um, there's a couple of those around the world, but um, as a, special zones are only starting to realize the power of combining those things together. They're just starting to realize that places are more effective and economically productive if they're both working there and living there because that provides more opportunities for citizens, mm-hmm. residents, whatever you want to call them, to interact with me. So what you're describing, you just said that there was um, like f- over 5,000 in the world right now is something that I think when people think of like, oh, here, we could have these new societies, it's like this brand new idea that no one's ever tried. And not only has people have people tried it, like we're, we're actively kind of happening now in various ways, um, you've, I think you also say in the book that like, this is, this is also kind of an ancient practice or, yes. or habit of human civilization. I think it would be really important for us to kind of highlight that because it's not like we're in an experimental mode now and we hope it works out because some of them have been successful. This is not, this is sort of what people do. Exactly. It's as old as civilization itself because if every society has to start out as a small experiment, essentially. But they scale and they become larger things like nation states or empires. But the ancient Sumerian cities were certainly startup societies. They were their experiments in agricultural and, and new social policies. You had the Greek city states that were the same. Uh, and uh, there tends to be a, a cycle. And it's kind of like the cycle of a startup to being a large corporation. Um, you have the cycle where you start out in a small experimental way, you're innovating. And then you grow, you grow successful at it because you find something that works. You find your market segment, as you would say, in a startup, and you, you work that segment and you scale and you reinvest. And then you, I mean, that's sanitizing a lot of what goes on in government, don't get me wrong, obviously, because sure, yeah. there's a lot of bloodshed. But the point being is it scales to a larger nation and then usually to an empire. But what happens after that is the, the essence of what caused that thing to grow initially, or just the pure entropy of growing something like that. It decays over time. And then it starts to lose legitimacy and power and things start to fracture and decentralize. And then you get to the point again where you're making these new things again. Um, so it's a historical process that's, that created uh, the Italian city-states or even uh, the Greek city-states. Um, it was you know, A lot of them were created after the collapse of the Mycenaean Empire. Um, and you saw a lot of uh, fracturization after the collapse of the Roman Empire. And I think the peak of of uh, homogenization and empire was probably after 1945 towards about 2001. That was sort of the peak, especially when you had only one global power. I mean, that's what they call it. They call it the United States, one global hegemon. And then it was starting to shape. And now we live in a multipolar world and that's going to be increasingly multipolar. So, and then what you've seen since 1945, increasingly since 2001, is this sort of extra 
territoriality, this, these special jurisdictions. They aren't just the Westphalian system of nation states govern. It's a bunch of different things govern. Like in the past, it could, governance was employed by, by guilds and trade unions and, and religious institutions and all sorts of things and clans. Um, hopefully we won't fall into the worst parts of that. But the point being is that there's a multiplicity of things that govern. Mm -hmm. uh, and we might be re-entering a phase like that now. And it's as old as time itself. It's just one of the aspects of the new iteration of this might be called a special zone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly this has a lot of appeal and whether you're a libertarian or not, because right now we're sitting, I'm, I'm, I mean, We'd be doing this podcast, me being at home anyway, no matter when. But your your book comes out at like a very interesting time. It came out the early 2020, which is, and we're in March 2020, or no, we're in April 2020 now. And we're in America and throughout most of the world, a lot of people are stuck at home because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, or we're stuck at home because the governments have reacted to the pandemic in certain ways. They should be more specific about that. And your, your book comes at a good time. So I, I think there might be room here to comment on the importance of us thinking through our displeasure in the way states have handled things based on, you know, geography and based on certain, you know, just knowledge that they simply don't have. So where, where, does, your, where does your approach uh, fit in from, from here? So I'm really glad you asked that, actually, um, because we're actually hosting a conference, uh, precisely that. Uh, a virtual conference, obviously, because of everyone stuck inside. But it's uh, the Virtual Startup Society Summit, Startup Societies in a Post-COVID World. And we're exploring how uh, we need to react towards the impending economic depression or recession that's going to take place, sort of the falling out of traditional institutions that have happened, and also how special jurisdictions can actually help in fighting pandemics. Um, because of places like Singapore or Hong Kong have shown to be much more adept at doing that because of it, it's much easier to deal with a pandemic if, if you're working on a smaller scale. Um, and like we said before, these small jurisdictions tend to be hyper-competitive. And if you have these large nation states losing legitimacy every single day, we need to have something that reconstructs the global order in a positive direction. Uh, and to, to speak on that, we have a really great array of speakers. We, we have a Prince... Michael Lichtenstein, which is a very competitive uh, microstate uh, um, that, that lives in the central of Europe, Texas, Switzerland. Uh, we have uh, founders of charter city projects in Zambia, mayors of private cities in Palestine, Roger Ver, who's uh, one of the preeminent Bitcoin investors, um, a, a gentleman called James Ehrlich, who's founded what he calls the Tesla of eco-villages, um, uh, Oliver Porter, who helped found a, a privatized city in Sandy Springs, Georgia, and all sorts of people that are creating free private cities like Titus Gabel and people that are working in the free zone and start site space, including Joe Quirk of the Seasteading Institute. So, um, and I'm leaving out 80% of the speakers. It's, it's, it's a really great way to meet investors, government officials, people that are actually building or currently running startup society projects right now. Um, and the topic is, where do we go from here? How do special jurisdictions help come back from the rubble? How can they help fight future pandemics? Um, because of COVID-19 is 9-11 times 20 or 10. And as we all know, after what happened, every policy discussion after 9-11 for seven or 10 years afterwards was 
redefined by the world or of the war on terror, et cetera. So anything that happens after COVID-19 has to refer back to that. And it completely changed our way of governance, period. And there's going to be a lot that's going to happen to the United States around the world afterwards. And from a libertarian perspective, it might not be too terribly positive, to be honest. Um, but there needs to be a safety valve. And I think these special zones and startup societies can do precisely that. And let me give you an example. So uh, in 1930s, uh, during the Great Depression, one of the things that actually made it much worse than it originally had to be was there was actually a trade war uh, through the Smoot-Hawley tariffs. And that completely um, halted global trade for a while. Um, and one way that made it a little bit worse is that the United States implemented uh, what they now call the Foreign Trade Zone Act, uh, which allowed for special zones within the United States to avoid tariffs and to have tariff exemptions or reductions. And that helped a lot. I think we need to apply a similar strategy or maybe probably even more uh, deep reforms in order to deal with the upcoming possible depression, at the very least recession. Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about the event on May 1st, the 2nd. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of different responses to this. You know, one question that I've kind of had while reading your material and, and, and listening to you talk here is like, well, if, if a lot of these different special economic zones are cities, is it possible for like the mayor of, let's say, Miami to sort of, you know, get what he needs to like, let, could he follow your guide and make Miami, just as an example, become a special economic zone and, and get moving in that direction? Because I think a lot of, I mean, clearly we're seeing a lot of mayors and governors and people who are in charge of smaller regions around the United States taking control and showing that they have the power to sort of implement things pretty quickly. Um, and so our mind as American have thought of solutions that are based on location. So maybe it's feasible for a less uh, progressive um, or regressive, really, uh, governor or mayor to actually implement this. So back to my Miami example, like could, could that particular mayor decide, hey, I want to push for this and, and kind of implement that? So uh, one th clarifying question before I directly answer it. I just want to clarify um, that not all startup societies have to be cities necessarily. They just have to be small areas that have different governance. It could be rural, rural or, uh, uh, or, or far away or not large scale. It right, just happens right. that if, if, if one of your focus is to scale fast and have a lot of impact and maybe generate a lot of revenue, cities are the best. But clarifying that you can have a rural startup society. Um, but yes, absolutely. Um, so what you can do is that you can have a special zone within a city uh, to supplement the governance of, of the city. You could just, as a, as a city, implement a lot of the policies that are recommended in the book. But at the same time, um, you need to, the city also needs to follow uh, laws of the state and of the federal government. And in order to have different or exemptions from those laws, there needs to be some sort of uh, zone framework that does it. So if, if there is a, a zone law that helps them do that, then they can apply these uh, pretty well. Like, let me give you an example. I, I live in Barranquilla, Colombia. And Barranquilla, Colombia is a, its own municipal government and has a, a, a regional government, Atlantico. Uh, and it's also known as a special district and has a port. And each of those uh, different jurisdictions have their own uh, sort of rule set. And they use that and they, they stack them on top of each other, so to speak, and have a concentration of, of policies that can attract businesses. And 
Barranquilla as a consequence of its special district and of its special port um, is one of the, the mega import export centers of, uh, of Colombia. And we could definitely apply that to Miami, especially it's, it's also a, a port town um, and it could attract a lot of people that way. Hmm. What are so you've talked a lot about a special economic zones. There's you, you also briefly mentioned in our conversation, but your book goes into it a little bit more private residential communities. Um, the first mm-hmm. thing I think of when I think of that is like housing associations. Is that right? Yeah, yes, yeah. that okay. is okay. Okay, I, I, I know a lot of people that don't. like when people hear yeah. HOAs, they think, Oh my gosh, I'd rather live in, in North Korea. But, uh, <laughs> but it, 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 the point is, I think a, a large part of the reason for HOAs being the way they are is because of the supply is low. And when you have a, a low supply of something, the quality isn't as great and it's not as individualized. But the principles of an HOA, the idea that people that are, are leasing there or, or, or owners in there be able to create a rule set that people abide by, um, that's pretty that's pretty transcendent of an individual place or model in Across time, um, but yes, it, it uh, without associating with HOAs, yes, it's like that. Okay, I mean, would would Amish communities also qualify as this? Oh, absolutely. In in yeah, a lot okay. of senses, yeah. So they, they have their own culture, and a culture is sort of a soft governance, obviously. Um, and also, they have legal exemptions. They don't have to pay social security taxes in a lot of cases, or payroll taxes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, that's that's very visual for me because I, I literally have Amish neighbors. Um, there's a, there's <laughs> literally a farm across my across my road, and uh, it you know it's very clear in my area of the country where w- the, what that can kind of look like. So that's that's a good uh, visible example, and most people understand that even if they've never been to Amish country anywhere. Um, so there's private residential communities, and then there's what you talk about is integrated startup societies. Yes, they're the combination of both of those things together. Okay. All right. So what are, what, um, the purpose of your book isn't just, Hey, here's this really cool idea we hope gets off the ground and here's some of the, you know, the, the history of it and so forth. I mean, in the title, it's a step-by-step guide. So who is your book for? It's for Startup Society Entrepreneurs. Yes, it can give an overview, especially the first couple of chapters, um, to people that are interested in the space or policymakers and, and, and people are just interested, but it's, it's, it's specifically geared to be a very, very practical to the point of some parts being incredibly dry. Uh, um, we go down to nitty gritty detail of how to make a pro forma, um, how to, how to do um, uh, construction tendering, uh, what have you. So the, the, we even have a, a, a 300 page appendices that shows uh, uh, draft legislation, draft concession agreements, mm. uh, et cetera. Um, so it's very, very practical. It's geared specifically towards people that are trying to start them, but not just people that are trying to start them because of, you know, th- there's people out there that do that, but they're very specialized and they tend to be working in government or l- very large corporations. The point of this mm. book is to allow bootstrapping entrepreneurs to start these things because of a startup society right now is different than a, a traditional tech startup because it can't start in a garage. And I know it sounds silly, but the point of this book is to move us closer to that, to that sort of level of capital needs that you can start incredibly small with a team with very little capital and scale up progressively from there. So we, it, it even goes down to level of instead of buying land for a whole city, what you do is secure a concession agreement, both for policies and land, for a single building, like a co-working space. 
And as part of the concession agreement, if they meet certain metrics or if they have uh, enough money in scale, they can have an expansion area. And so you can get another building or you can have another block or you can get another street. And the point is you scale like a startup from a garage into a large corporation or a large company. But in this case, it's a city. Mm-hmm. And there's examples of that right now. So what are some of the sort of shortfalls that people kind of get into that they need a guide? I mean, people who are pretty entrepreneurial, it's like, hey, let, let them go try and let them fail and let this one try and let this one fail. And, you know, like, we'll, we'll see the ones that succeed. I mean, that's a very entrepreneurial idea. But, you know, even entrepreneurs need guides and people who assist them or give them like, hey, you don't want to go down this road. This is not, this is not a, this is a bad rabbit trail to go down or whatever. So like, what are some, what are some shortfalls that typical people or the typical entrepreneur in this way would, would sort of miss out on if they didn't know about your book? Well, there's the nitty gritty stuff that we help with, obviously, like doing pro forma and how to do construction tendering and stuff like that. But there's also very, very common startup society specific things that aren't really, that aren't related to simple real estate development, uh, political problems, uh, especially with, you know, communities because of, uh, there is no tabula rasa in the world. Even with seasteading projects, there has been trouble with engaging with, with locals or what happened. And within the book, we adamantly and constantly talk about the need to engage and have locals be leaders in, in, in efforts. Because of the idea of, of, of someone setting up shop, uh, especially in really, really populated places, like within an existing community and setting up a new government system, and ignoring locals is completely abhorrent. And it's the reason why a lot of these projects fail. So what we recommend is, for one, you, you, you start the project with a local partner. And the local partner is the one who secures the agreement, who works with their government, who uh, uh, secures the, the quick start, the initial area. And they are you know, moving it forward. And we also say there needs to be community engagement. And very importantly, we have something that we recommend called an endowment zone, which is taking a part of the startup society property or taking a percentage of the revenue and donating it to the local community to fund local causes. So sort of like in the same incentive structure that I talked about with government, we have that with the local community and throughout it, they determine what that funds. So the point being is not just abstractly economically, oh, they get jobs or oh, they get economic growth. No, they get direct economic benefit from it. And they have a member of the community is the one that navigates the whole thing and leads. Hmm. You, you sort of alluded to it earlier in the beginning. What are some of the biggest pushbacks you've gotten? I mean, maybe not necessarily from libertarians, but I, I can imagine that a lot of libertarians are very interested or people who are more freedom focused are interested in this kind of project. But anyway, in, in any case, what have been like some of the, the stronger pushbacks that people come up against? Yes, I want to clarify something. That startup societies are not purely libertarians. I mean, a lot of us, myself included, originally came from a libertarian background. But I would say that I and a lot of people in the space are exitarians. We believe that the best political systems occur when you're allowed to opt in and opt out of things. That creates competition in government for something better. And that may or may not be strict Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism or David Friedman minarchism. It could be something completely different. And for a lot of people that are, let's say, dogmatic, a special zone is giving up on principle or the idea of giving to a state or paying any taxes at all is a complete betrayal of the principles because taxation is is theft. Um, But I would say that's shooting oneself in the foot. 
because if your goal is to create some some sort of pocket where you can experiment with with uh, the policies that you say fit, um, right. if you look at the plethora of these experiments, they've all failed if they take that approach of you know screw the government taxation and stuff yeah. we're going to create another thing. They all get quashed, every single one of them. So it's not worthwhile if you want to make something happen. And at the same time, it ignores that these projects do have a tremendous impact. And we live in a historical moment where not only are special zones and special jurisdictions increasing in number and in value, but institutions themselves are, are, are crumbling. In fact, that's what a lot of libertarians are crying about all the time. So you have this point where nation states and governments are declining in capacity. And at the same time, you're seeing a point where special jurisdictions are increasing in capacity. So even if you don't have 100% of what you want in a complete uh, laissez-faire, private security, you know, no harm, everything goes type of environment, you're setting the stage for something that could be progressively more autonomous over time. But the point is that libertarians need to realize that governments need to be treated as partners. Sovereignty must be respected and abided by. And if you want to get anywhere, you need to respect that. Yeah, I mean, to, in my mind, I, I don't even know why people would, um, you know, push back so strongly about it. Because I'm like, we're not actually, there's no place called Incapistan that you are possibly going to move to. But you do have this option, or we do potentially have this option where we get special privileges that push in that direction. And if the last, you know, I mean, again, like, would you rather... Pay t- <laughs> would you rather pay taxes now or would you rather pay taxes in a special zone that gives you a lot of the other freedoms that you'd prefer? Because the alternative is not no taxes that you want. Like that's not on the table. Exactly. It's all about yeah. choices and hopefully we can open them up as much as possible. Yeah. Well, and I'm also glad that you made the proviso that it's this is not a libertarian per se project because, you know, even in some of your description, like you could have these like eco cities, which isn't anti-libertarian, but it's also very much associated with people who are more on the left. So you're or even saying egalitarian that the, projects you could have, yes, uh, right. like, like, like communes, uh, uh, kibbutzes, those are also forms of starved societies. Right. But the key principle here is that people can, the, the right of exit without hu- huge burdensome, you know, costs. Exactly. Yeah. So what about issues of justice? I can imagine there being a situation. And, and again, this is like one of those, uh, you know, we, we've seen small examples of this within the United States history where there's like a small commune and they want to have their own community and there's issues of, you know, incest, rape, injustices against women or just any individual. Um, What is a startup society that is going to kind of heads in that direction where the rest of society says, oh, over there, they are doing egregious things. What do we do about it? So um, what we have is the principle of exit. It's basically the idea that a startup society must allow the ease of exit and competition. So even if there is a bad startup society, at least it can be it can be ended or overcome. Um, and if there is undue cost on a citizen or resident to leave, then it's not something that we associate with. And it's it's a very broad stroke. I mean, there's obviously more fine grained concepts of justice that people are should focus on. So the, what we create is something very bare bones, and basically saying examples of things that lay too heavy of a cost for exit are democide, arbitrary laws that no one can follow, an impossible cost to exit, like setting up the Berlin Wall, uh, surveillance for blackmail, torture, fraud. So any of those types of startup societies, we don't respect. 
Um, we do not associate with, we disassociate with them and, and speak publicly that they are wrong. Okay. So another, another thing that I, you know, might be pushed back and maybe this, maybe you have, maybe you've heard this or not, but like the, imagine if all of the billionaires, all mm-hmm. 20 of them or whatever there are in, in the world, move to one of these uh, startup societies. And how is that good for everyone else? Or let's just say all, anybody who makes over a hundred million dollars, they, they move to a certain city, you know, and they decide that that's where they're going to be. Um, is there a sort of economic disruption that could happen if, if certain types of people end up going to these places? Because clearly, you know, one of the things that, you know, politicians really want is they want billionaires in their society because, you know, the left needs to fund their programs. And, uh, you know, that, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. Uh, but, like, what happens when a bunch of people, like, exit to a certain zone? I mean, that's been a pushback that I've gotten about federalism in the United States. We're like, oh, well, if we don't have a unified, you know, laws against uh, insurance or whatever, then we're going to have, you know, this sort of race to the bottom. And, you know, people are going to, like, flee the areas that are worse off. And so that's going to just make other people worse off. So I don't buy that. I mean, one example... And I guess this, this will kind of sound like libertarian reasoning, but imagine you have a badly run factory uh, and it fails. Does that cause an economic dis- uh, disruption? Certainly. Absolutely. Um, but the point being is that it has to be allowed to fail. So then you can have competitors that come up. So if you have a lot of billionaires that are attracted to a certain place, isn't that indication that the place that they're currently in is not responsive? And one could say, well, then you have this concentration of billionaires. But what happens is when you have that competitive dynamic is that you'll have other jurisdictions that say, hey, we're losing billionaires. We need to improve our laws likewise. So we never get to the point where you have that complete concentration. Mm. Um, And even if you do have a certain level of concentration, that's absolutely wonderful for economic growth around the world. Think of example for the Silicon Valley. Uh, the reason why it's successful or why Detroit was successful or why New York was successful was a concept of an agglomation effect. The idea that if you if you concentrate human capital in one place, you start getting people interacting more and collaborating more in a much more productive manner than, than ever before. And then you get places like Detroit that had a bunch of people that were working together on cars and were able to trade uh, human capital with one another, or the Silicon Valley, where they were trading coders or, or startup entrepreneurs. Um, so that could be beneficial to a certain uh, aspect. But if you have a truly global market for startup societies and jurisdictions, which we don't have now, um, I would be very reluctant to think that there would be this huge uh, concentration of places because it's not just going to be one project. It's going to be mm-hmm. uh, 10,000, you know, whatever number. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even 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 billionaires are attracted to different things. We're not all probably going to concentrate. Also, on a on a side note, I don't think all the billionaires together in one place would be able to stand each other. I would imagine that there'd be too many competing <laughs> egos. <laughs> yeah, that's probably that's probably very true. So, all right, well, I'm sold that we need we need to do more startup societies. And if I want to learn more, you have this conference coming up. Uh, where can people go to or attend this conference? And in, also, any further website material. So you can go to the startupsocieties.org website and there's a little bottom, uh, little button at the bottom that says attend the virtual sum- um, summit. Um, you can also look at hopin.to startupsocieties and you can get a ticket. 
That is awesome. Joe, thank you for introducing us to this idea and for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on and uh, happy Easter. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.